0: You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation.
1: Hello, I am Morgan Atbanous,
0: and I'm Leo Stevens, and welcome to the brief where
1: we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Leo. What have you got for us today?
0: Hey Mark, today I want to talk about an ominous sounding topic, shadow directing. So as a quick refresh, directors are the people who oversee a company on behalf of its shareholders. They attend board meetings, vote on important items of business, and have the power to hire and fire company executives such as the CEO. Importantly, directors are legally responsible for the company and can be held personally accountable for its actions. Every company must register its directors with ASIC and keep detailed records of the meetings they hold so their actions can be reviewed if that's necessary. So that's a regular director, but what about shadow directors? Essentially, a shadow director is somebody who wields the influence of a director without being officially registered. A classic example would be a majority shareholder who regularly met with the CEO or stacked the board with their personal friends over whom they could influence voting. If this shareholder is effectively steering the company from the background, they are a shadow director. The distinction can be hard to prove, though, because there's a lot of grey area between what is legitimate advice and shadow directing. And you can imagine a major investor having regular meetings with a CEO without necessarily treading into the area of shadow directing. Nevertheless, being a shadow director is illegal, and it can attract serious penalties. In 2020, there was a landmark conviction against a shadow director of the former white goods company, CleanMade. He was convicted to five years in prison for trading insolvent during the company's downfall, despite not being an officially registered director of the company.
1: That's a serious sentence, five years. So what can a company do if they suspect that there is a someone is acting as a shadow director what tools or what processes or what can they actually do
0: well i mean when you say the company then you probably should get a bit more granular and talk about the individuals involved so you're talking about the ceo you're talking about the other directors who are officially registered and those people actually just have to be a bit stronger in rejecting or sidelining the advice of this person who's wielding influence from the sidelines So if a CEO is getting very frequent calls from this shareholder and feels like they are too influential, the CEO can say, well, either become a register as an official director or I'm going to have to stop taking your calls. And equally, the official directors who are registered can vote in ways other than how they are directed by this shadow director person and sideline his influence that way.
1: But what if this shadow director has stacked the board, as you mentioned in your introduction? What, what tools does a CEO and maybe the chairman of the board, assuming that they weren't installed, what what tools do they have available then?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is up to that group of the, the executive and the, the official board to get together to realize this is happening. And officially, the shadow director has very little power over these meetings whatsoever. They aren't in the meetings, they don't participate in the votes, so the other people can just vote on their own conscience, irrespective of the influence. Alternatively, you know, all of these people can resign essentially in protest for the undue influence this shareholder is wielding. You do not have to continue your director's role if you feel like it's being jeopardised by this person. Another way of looking at this is it's not against the directors necessarily. The crime is the shadow director. Mm. So these other people are not strictly doing anything wrong by executing their legal authorities despite the fact that there's this shadow director hanging around it's it's the shadow director who needs to correct their actions
1: but you would never introduce yourself as hey i'm a shadow director of this company right no
0: they would probably introduce themselves as a major shareholder um james packer has been at a royal Mm. commission for crown resorts he was a major shareholder but he was not a director and there is questions about whether he should be deemed a shadow director of that business uh, and therefore held liable for its actions
1: so that could have serious problems for him if he was deemed to be a shadow director because you said before this this person from cleanmate got 5 years in prison that could be
0: yeah i mean the convictions are quite rare like like i said there's a lot of gray area between legitimate advice and what constitutes being a shadow director so i'm sure lawyers would get involved. The CleanMade case took, you know, over a decade to, to mm. actually come to a conviction because it is such a complex area. But yes, there is a risk for sure.
1: Okay, well, let me talk to you about my topic for this week, which is what is digital learning in the post-COVID world?
0: Right, very topical.
1: So first of all, digital learning can be defined as instructional tools that academics and other teachers can use to teach their students. And generally you would make use of a broad range of technology enhancing educational strategies, which generally can include blended learning, flipped learning, personalized learning. So that's a lot of terms, but they all are strategies that rely on digital tools. Now before COVID academics like myself, we would use digital learning in addition to face to face learning. So for example, students would use a digital learning platform to watch instructional videos and do a quiz before they would come to my lab class where we would do face-to-face things. And similarly, they would do a post-quiz using digital learning. Now, during COVID, as is probably well known, all of the face-to-face teaching components were stopped and students were taught solely through digital learning. Now, the post-COVID world is going to be a little bit in between that. And in particular, it is not because universities don't want to go back to -to face-to-face, but it's most likely because there are lots of constraints. So, for example, most universities don't have the room capacity to teach large classes under COVID distancing rules. Generally speaking, in a lecture theater or in a lab, you're almost sitting shoulder-to-shoulder, which you can't do post-COVID. In addition some students may not even want to come to campus or they aren't allowed to come to campus because there are border restrictions in place between our states and territories and even with other countries. And then there's also lots of internal constraints like universities are currently reducing their workforce and casual teaching is rapidly disappearing. And I'm actually going to end with an open-ended question because what is that actually going to do to the university experience for students? And these are very briefly the key aspects of digital learning.
0: Yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of uh, things people would be familiar with there with digital communications these days. Obviously, everyone's getting involved. The, the terms you mentioned, blended learning and flipped learning, what are these approaches to learning that require digital
1: so blended learning could be you, you go to a face-to-face, say a workshop, you get taught some uh, material, then at the end of it you do a quiz, but you do the quiz online, and then in that online environment you are then doing peer marking all through the digital learning platform rather than doing the peer marking in class. That would be an example of blended learning. Flip learning is where you actually get the students to do the learning rather than you do the learning for them. So rather than go to a lecture theatre where a lecturer is standing in front of the classes and is putting information out, flipped learning is the other way around. It's a more dialogue process in terms of learning, so students are getting engaged to contribute to the learning.
0: So, like a student presentation, would be yeah,
1: something like like that, where your students can also become involved.
0: Um, something I've, I've been wondering: you know, most people will attend a university near their, you know, their, within their state or in their region when they're choosing which university to go to. That geographic closeness is a factor. I've, I've been wondering as digital learning becomes, you know, normal and more widespread. Do you think that geographic location of where your university is will change? Will people, you know, choose to attend? Stanford and Harvard and Oxford instead of universities in their region.
1: If if the university experience is never going to be like it was pre-COVID, where you get large groups of young people that interact and they drink a lot of coffee and tea and they hang out on university campuses and they benefit from meeting other people and from their experiences and interacting with their tutors and teachers in a face-to-face way, if that is completely going to disappear then, of course, there is no difference to studying at your local university versus studying at a prestigious university abroad. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, well, uh, drinking coffee and tea is probably a a nice way to put it, Mark. I'm sure some other liquids are consumed on university campuses. Uh,
1: I've heard that happens
0: occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that's enough for this week. We'll uh, catch you next time.
1: Catch you next time.